Welcome to the Read Optional Podcast, taping this on a Thursday afternoon. I am joined on the line by Mark Schofield, USA Today, all other online outlets, usually somewhere 9,000 times in a week, talking, writing, doing something. Mark, how are you? I'm doing well, Ollie. How are you, my friend? We'll get to that time of year when we're tired, right? Oh, I am just about hanging on at this point. I am really at the very cliff's edge. I will say this year, I started this year, I said, you know, I live in the UK, okay, but for my entire professional life, I've either lived in America or lived back and forth. Okay. Then there was a global plague. You may have heard about this, Mark. And I was saddled only on this side of that great divide. Right. And I thought, you know what, this year, I'm just going to live like I live in the UK. How about I don't go to bed at five in the morning as if I lived on the East coast and I'll just live like an English person. Then midway through the year, I found out that is wholly unsustainable for this craft. And I had to revert back my sleep schedule mid-year back to the East Coast time. And so it has been a disaster is how I would uh, describe that. That that sounds absolutely brutal, but I understand. Like, (laughs) I'm always amazed when I see, like, in the middle of, like, a primetime game, people like you and and Matty Brown, like, live tweeting stuff. And I'm just, (laughs) like, looking at my watch, and I'm like, okay, Matty, I don't – I can't comprehend how it's, like, four in the morning where you're at. And you're calling out like Rip Liz match on the fly. Like, what are you doing, buddy? Yeah, it's an illness, right? It's yeah. an illness. Uh, I mean, we we're all it. diseased in some way. So. <laughs> um, right. I wanted to do uh, some championship game preview stuff with you. Um, I'm not a huge preview guy, um, but I thought we could kind of go through some maybe the schematic trends, narratives of those teams, uh, pick some stuff out. They've played each other before, which is really helpful. So, so you do get, I think, more interesting stuff out of a, out of a preview style. Um, but before we do that, let's just do some quick new stuff that I think is interesting. Um, Nathaniel Hackett, Packers OC, um, confirmed as the Broncos head coach. And so we get all of the juicy gossip about the, the Rodgers tandem. And then could they do a, a Rodgers-Devontae Adams double tandem, double trade swindle? Um, that'd be fascinating. The thing for me with, with Hackett, everyone you speak to is like in awe of the guy. It's like, oh, no, yeah, he's the real deal. Watch out for Nathaniel Hackett. He, it's not just going to be a, you know, wherever he goes, Rogers goes because they're friends and they got phone numbers. Like, he is the real deal. And and yeah, I sit back and watch from afar. I've never spoke to Nathaniel Hackett. I'm like, is there a Nathaniel Hackett-ism? Isn't his thing just his ability to adapt, kind of like Brian Dable, that he knows all the things and that he can just kind of pick it up and move to whatever he needs to in whatever arena he winds up in now in, in Denver? There's not really like a strand where you would say, this was LaFleur and this was Hackett, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of right there with you on it. I mean, I, th- I think obviously, and you sort of started with it, the main direction this is going to go for the next three months, and quite frankly, it's kind of nice for what we do, is three months of Aaron Rodgers speculation. I mean, that's where this is going to go over the next three months. You know, is Rodgers going to Denver? Could we get a, you know, quarterback super division with Rogers, Mahomes, Herbert, and Derek Carr. I mean, that would be a pretty tremendous four quarterback group just in one division. So that's going to be the big speculation. But I think you're right about Hackett. It's just his ability to adapt. It's not like, you know, if you're hiring a guy like who we're going to talk about in a few minutes, Sean Payton, or, you know, you're hiring a Josh McDaniels. They're from this like specific philosophical schematic school. Like Hackett's very sort of wide range. And it's not like, I'm going to sit down tomorrow and say, oh, here's what the Denver Broncos offense is absolutely positively going to look like under Hackett because, you know, this is the things that he likes to do conceptually. It's going to be wide range. It's going to be extremely multiple to use a sort of buzzword catchphrase. It's going to be diverse. They'll have the ability to sort of tailor what they do offensively to whether it's Aaron Rodgers or Drew Locke or some other quarterback to be named later. So I, I like the move from that perspective. I think if you're Hackett, this is a good this is a good place to be. Yes, you're in the division with those other quarterbacks, but the Broncos are in large part a quarterback away, I think. I mean, they're extremely talented on both sides of the ball, particularly, I think, on the defensive side of the ball, though I kind of love what they can run out there from an 11 personnel standpoint on offense when everybody's healthy. If you get the quarterback piece figured out, you could be a playoff team almost overnight. And so I think from his perspective, it's a great move. I, I think – in terms of whether it's Rodgers or some other quarterback, it's going to be great for that person. So I think this is a good hire. I agree. I mean, 
you have to do whatever you can to increase your odds on the Aaron Rodgers thing. No one can get into that guy's mind. It's not even worth anyone's time trying. But if you increase your odds at Rodgers 5% for a 5% less talented coach, not that Hackett is, we have no idea. I think you just do that anyway. It's like, ah, oh, whatever. Most of these guys don't work out. We're in that division. You know, let's swing right. for the fences and just kind of shuffle it a bit there. The only downside I see from a coaching standpoint going into that gig is that weird ownership situation where they were like, we will, yeah. we will hire a coach. We'll keep the GM. We will hire a coach. The GM will not hire the coach. And then we will sell the team. It's like, wait, what? This is a bizarre situation for Hackett to walk in unless he's pretty confident that like, oh, Aaron wants to move to Denver and he's coming with me. Yeah, and a lot of people, Ollie, sort of thought last offseason when, you know, they decided, look, we're not going to draft a quarterback, we're going to draft Patrick Sertan. And certainly there are schematic reasons and roster construction reasons to draft a cornerback with that ability and in talent level. We saw how well Sertan played. But a lot of people, whether it was, you know, on Twitter or in articles or even sort of behind the scenes were like, you don't make that decision if you don't have at least a, a thought that, yeah, you're going to make a, a run at Rogers and have a real shot at signing him. And so I think you're right. Like, you know, head coach and higher end, sometimes they pan out, sometimes they don't, but we know, and we saw this past weekend, you kind of need the quarterback piece. You, you need to get that part right. And if you're Denver, if you're a Broncos fan, you saw this year. Yeah. You need the quarterback piece. So to your sort of calculation there, if hiring hack could get you 5% closer to Aaron Rodgers, if it gets you from like 25 to 30, I think you'll do that just because it gives you that much better of a shot at getting the guy that finishes the puzzle. And you touched on it before, but it doesn't necessarily just have to be Rogers either because of the, because of the roster construction, they have talented skill position players. The offensive line is really talented when all those guys are healthy. So it's like, even if you get Kirk cousins or you can get Russell Wilson, you know, as long as they can swing for someone, it makes more sense. Also makes the thing easier to sell. I imagine if you're able to bring one of those guys in, although, uh, Getting an NFL yeah. franchise is hard to do, irrespective. Um, uh, Chicago, this was just before we started taping this. Is it Eberflus, Eberflus? I'll never get that right. I'm not, uh, uh, I will try at some point to, to learn it. Matt Eberflus, Eberflus, um, the DC from the Colts. He's going to be the head coach in Chicago. And one of the most um, divisive defensive characters we have in the league because a lot of people who are, should we say, either creating content, be it coaching people, a lot of people who talk in the football intelligentsia, I'll put it that way, okay? Either it's Solak at the ringer, it's you, it's me, it's coaches, high school coaches who tweet a lot, it's the guys at PFF. He kind of hits on all these things that people dislike about NFL coaching when they've worked in the other arenas, be it college football or high school football, because of the spot drop coverage, because it's so zone dense, because it's a lot of sit back and rally and kind of build an environment Environment that's like let's try and get these 30 guys on the same page with interchangeable pieces in, in the other parts by the end of the season that's kind of his whole thing it's not the exotic top balls it's not the really fun vance joseph it's the um sit back and then rally defensive style and hope you can hit on the down four that you know it makes everything magical um so i'm not sure if it's going to get people super excited i will say though that uh, them going, I, I was all in favor of them going for a defensive hire. I know everyone wanted the young hotshot RPO heavy, um, you know, win through play design OC for Justin Fields. I get that's what people are after, but I really feel like Justin Fields is so malleable. What what is the talent? It's downfield accuracy, and then if he has to, he can extend plays and create off script. Right. So it's so easy to fit that into pretty much anything. Right. You give him the Byron Leftwich offense. I don't think you necessarily need Bruce Aaron's or Byron Leftwich to be there to run that stuff. All that stuff right. is now right throughout the league. Right. You, you can pick up 24 playbooks and they all have the exact same plays with a couple of different things and maybe they call it different stuff. Right. So I think just because of what Fields' natural ability is and the, the very specific things, which is downfield accuracy, accuracy at the intermediate level when clean. And then, like I said, the ability to extend plays, as long as you can find a line to keep him upright, there's not really a system you have to put him in. I think he, you can give him anything and a power run heavy play action game, whether Jim Harbaugh is there himself to teach it, which was floated out there with Greg Roman, or whether you get someone like Eberflus to run the culture and run the defense, and then you just roll through every two, three years, Fields becomes the kingmaker, you know, who gets these guys to run a McVeigh offense, a Shanahan offense, a Roman offense, and elevates their... Uh, their stock, I think if he's kept clean, he can run anything. 
Yeah, I largely agree with that. I mean, I, I know, like you said, a lot of people thought Brian Dable, right? Like get the offensive minded guy as your head coach and really put the focus on developing Justin Fields. And in terms of Dable and his resume, like developing or helping develop Josh Allen is a massive resume builder. I mean, and it's just a matter of time until Dable's name gets announced, whether it's Miami or elsewhere. But I think going in this direction, you know, you're going to – you had issues on the defensive side of the ball as well. Now, this is a roster that was largely constructed sort of in the Vic Fangio tree, you know, expected to run a lot of too high stuff, expected to, you know, run a lot of, you know, different coverages out of that too high family. And that's kind of where Buffalo is. You know, they were very heavy covered two team. And like you said, a lot of sort of spot drop and stuff. And, you know, like you said, there are a lot of us sort of on the outside or some coaches that say, you know, this country drop stuff – it doesn't really have a home in the NFL. There's also a counter to that when you've got tremendous athletes that are experienced and have seen stuff, letting them keep eyes on concepts and how they develop. Maybe there's something to be said for that too, but you know, he has his style. This is a, a roster that was constructed in large part with some schematic overlays to what he's to what he's going to be bringing in. And now I think the offensive coordinator hire is going to be big. I'll continue to ban the table for Pep Hamilton. Um, I know Houston is probably going to try to promote him to OC to keep him. But I think in terms of quarterback development, you look at, you know, obviously, look, he, he was part of the Colts organization with Andrew Luck. That's one thing. I think a lot of people could have had success as a quarterback developer with the opportunity to coach Andrew Luck. But you look at what he did last year with Justin Herbert as the you know quarterback coach out in L.A. with the Chargers. You look at what he did this year with Davis Mills as the quarterback coach and passing game coordinator. And at times, Mills looked like, one of the best rookie quarterbacks this year, maybe at times the best rookie quarterback this year. And so I, I you look at that offense with the Chargers last year, um, Herbert's rookie season, very vertical stuff off of play action, you know, some, some RPO stuff at times, some stuff to use his legs and athleticism. I think that's exactly like you described with Fields and you nailed his, his best traits, sort of the downfield pass and the, sometimes the ability to hit the intermediate windows when he's kept clean, the ability to extend plays with his legs. So if you could get Pep Hamilton to Chicago with Everflus, I, and then obviously the, the, the general manager they just hired, who I think is a great hire for them. That's a tremendous sort of off season turnaround for the bears, you know, going from the naggy pace regime to now polls and Everflus and potentially Pep Hamilton. Out of interest, who is the guy who, I know this is all fit, it's all job, it's all roster, and it's all, it all depends on the certain profile of what's going to be asked for you as the coach and the makeup of the roster when you go into it. But who is the guy you kind of banging the table for going into the cyclers? That's your number one, almost irrespective of job type, that that's the person you want to go get. I mean, I, I think this cycle, because of everything we've seen over the past couple of years, it's Dable. Mm-hmm. I mean, the especially for the teams that have the need to develop a young quarterback. Now we, all of us, you, me, all of us on the media, whenever we see something, we have to explain it. Right. And so every time I do a radio show or a podcast or or whatever, I get asked, you know, what is the rig reason for, for Josh Allen and why he's developed and why people like you, Mark and others sort of missed on him. And, you know, we want to find the structural reasons, right. You know, the offense, the scheme, and it's easy to come back to the continuity with him and Brian Dable together for so many years. And I think that almost does it in a, in a way, Ollie, a disservice to Josh Allen because he had to do the work, you know, and he, you, you hear Jordan Palmer, his private quarterback coach, talk about the work that he's done and, you know, on shows that he does or highlight the, on Instagram and things like that, where he's Allen is, you know, thrown on the beach and working on his footwork and his mechanics. And you could certainly see, the difference in him as a quarterback from head to toe where he is now back to what he was at Wyoming and the strides he took as a quarterback. And so I, I don't want to gloss over the work that Josh Allen did to improve himself. And that's why when we start doing shows in the next couple of weeks and months about who is this year's, you know, Josh Allen, is it Malik Willis? Is it Desmond Ritter? Is it this quarterback or that quarterback? That's hard to answer because you have to find, you know, it's the Steve Mariucci line from the Brady Six. You have to rip open the chest and see what's inside, see the heart. Does Do those guys have the same sort of ethic and desire to improve their craft that we've seen from Josh Allen? And will they 
have the opportunity to stick around to do that. And so, you know, I just want to sort of get in there as much as I love Dable. And I think he was the guy that I would go for if I'm Miami, if I'm, you know, Denver or Chicago or any of the Jacksonville, any of these teams, you've got a young quarterback or potentially a young quarterback and you need to go develop him. Yeah. Dable's the guy, but I still think we should also at the same time, acknowledge the fact that Allen's rise and his development and his growth and everything that he's done that has forced people on us, like us to sort of reevaluate how we look at the quarterback position from a draft evaluation standpoint, Allen deserves a ton of credit for that. I'm so happy you brought that up because it is so often left out of the discussion that Josh Allen didn't figure out to do that himself. <laughs> but right. As you said, going with a private, I mean, he completely reconstructed uh, reconstructed how he resets his feet because before he did not reset his feet ever if he moved off his yeah. spot the foot the base was never reset that is not easy to reprogram when it's happening the bullets are flying at that speed now he was afforded the time by the bills two years to say yeah cool live action learn this trait please and once he's done that he's now the best thrower in the league <laughs> throwing footballs down yeah. the field maybe patrick mahomes maybe joe burrow but he's there um that is magical and, and it, it's, it would be strange, I think, to suspect you could go somewhere and find someone else with that similar, as you said, ability to, to just have the drive, the homicidal competitive nature, like Brady, to be thinking about it every waking day. How can I reset my platform when I move? That's not an unusual thing you wake up and think about, you know, so that, and that's what it takes at that level. Now, the interesting thing there then is what organizations already know their quarterback has that and who is honest with themselves and is like, our guy doesn't have that. Because then at that point, I mean, Dable, the, the great thing about Dable, the only reason I've ever had reticence with him is one, that thing there. The I think he's ascribed credit to a thing that he is not necessarily responsible for. Not that he doesn't right. have a helping hand in it, but he did not teach Josh Allen how to reset the base. I mean, you can talk him through how to do it, but so could you probably, right? It's like Josh Allen probably knows it and just was not doing it when he was on the field. Um it, it, his is more to me the big picture of being able to blend and mash different styles knowing when to jump to each one essentially uh taking out all the bullshit out of the playbook that's the thing he's done so well everywhere he's gone it's like we have too much stuff now let's declutter this thing focusing on what we do well and maximize it as much as possible same stuff different presentation all the classics but when he was at alabama which is a team i covered really closely for the year he was there two years one year um it was not smooth. And that would be right. my concern with him, maybe big picture if he's given the whole keys to the organization. But I want a guy at this point who is not obsessed with his way, does not think he's cracked football and realizes that these are all evolutionary cycles. And if you're hiring someone now on the McVay tree, being like, come run the McVay offense from five years ago, it's like, well, the league has already moved on and adapted and figured out how to slow some of those things down. I want someone who is willing at all times to move and evolve with the league and ideally be a, a step ahead. And the thing that I do love about Dable is he has been to all these different outposts, right? His older career, then New England, Alabama, then to here. And every time completely buys into that project, completely buys into the fact that as quarterback coach in New England, they're running that timing system, completely buys in Alabama to say, I will continue with this, this grand plan Nick has that we are now going to be an RPO dense offense. Um, and I, that to me and then go into Allen and saying let's run all the Wyoming stuff shit it doesn't work let's become a spread offense overnight right that that ability to just massively jump from one style to the other um that's that is unusual at the highest highest level to be able to give to yourself and say yeah it's not about me it's just about finding out ways to win it's not me proving I'm the smartest guy around that is a pretty great trait for him to have absolutely and I think it's the next sort of new wave evolution of quarterback. I mean, not just quarterback coaching, football coaching, because, you know, we've been talking about for years, like in terms of developing quarterbacks, like you have to avoid the process or the traditional mold of fitting those square pegs into round holes. And you and I have talked about this for years. Um, you know, you draft a quarterback who's run offense X and you're like, oh, that's fantastic. I'm so glad that you ran offense X in college and ran it extremely well but I coach offense Y and you're going to now run this. And I don't care if they're dramatically different. I don't care if the skill set to run X and the skill set to run Y are completely different. And you're not that guy. I'm going to make you that guy. You don't have time to make him that guy. Like from the organizational pressures on down the CBA rules on down, you don't have time. So you better draft a guy. If he's running offense X, you have better have the ability to install offense X or at least a major portion of it 
Otherwise, you're just doing them a disservice. And so the humility that's sort of involved in this next sort of wave of coaches that are like, yeah, you know, this is what I've done. This is what I think works. But if we end up drafting a quarterback for whatever reason or, or trading for or signing a quarterback for whatever reason, who's from a different schematic school, I'm going to rework what we do to, to fit him, to fit our talent. The, the days of sort of fitting those square pegs in the round holes, we're leaving those in the dust and for the better. Um, because when you get quarterbacks that are coming out each year that are running very different offenses, you better have the ability to adapt your offenses to what they do, or you're really going to struggle. And then this thing is so hard because you might get a guy like Josh Allen who is running the wrong offense in college, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> He's running five-step, heavy drop, heavy play action, under center, turn the back, and then he gets to the NFL and we're like, oh, we'll do all your stuff, Josh. And then they look at each other and realize, I don't think we should be doing this. He's not very good. How about we go 11 personnel, spread out, flash fake, RPO, and off we go. Just drop him back there, let him know people are down the field somewhere, and I'm sure he'll figure it out. And then, boom, liftoff. So, it's, yeah, it's the most impossible thing in the sport. Um, yep. One guy who's been good at this, a uh, great segue from me, who has retired, not retired, has openly admitted it's a year, basically, and then um, he'll take whichever job has the finest quarterback available, one imagines. Um, Sean Payton, who, I, I, for, the, for how we cover the game mostly, I wanted to get into more of the kind of the schematic legacy of Payton because I don't think he quite gets the credit beyond people say, you know, um, great passing attack and, and all the all the, the vintage stuff. But I don't think he's quite being given the credit or put near uh, on the pedestal he should be for quite how sophisticated and clever he's been and kind of exactly what you're saying there, almost having this timeline in his head and the gradations of that Saints system over time. You, you go from the early West Coast stuff classic rhythm drop back stuff. And I'm talking purely with Drew Brees here. Then you get the, the bombs away downfield attack where it's all switch releases, deep, deep breaks, right? Real deep drops and deep breaks and letting Brees rip it downfield. Then they move to isolate and attack, remove the play design. We're going purely three by one. Jimmy Graham on one side of the field, three guys on the other side, Drew reads it out and we just play pitch and catch football to the final years where there's little juice left to squeeze out of Breeze's arm and we're going to go pure confusing clobber power run Alvin Kamara uh, we're going to be shift shift motion motion shift shift right this is what we're going to be now yeah and th those four transformations were really profound and at the end I mean there's, there's the wonderful year when they they should have uh, when they had the terrible thing in the, uh, the championship game with the Vikings where they kind of fuse them all together at one point because they have Michael Thomas doing the Jimmy Graham stuff because the big body and all that and I just don't think, I think it's almost like people think, oh, they had Drew Brees and he had a system. And like that, that was the great success for 15 years. And I, do, I just, maybe it's just me thinking I'm more important than I am, but I just don't think people have quite seen the nuance of what he constructed and how he evolved it over time. No, I think you're absolutely right, Ollie. I mean, people think Sean Payton, they think, you know, obviously West Coast offense, they think he had Drew Brees, who's a computer on, on the field, who's just supremely accurate and picking defenses apart with his mind and they sort of wipe their hands free and say yeah you know that's what he had that that's a sean payton legacy but you're right his offenses during the time in new orleans went through various and in some points wildly different diversions um from that sort of basic west coast system whether it's the sort of later you know drew Brees years where it was you know a lot more of like you said the the, the run game focus and alvin kamara and you know, just weak side option and, and that's going to be what they do or was, you know, the, the sort of switch release vertical stuff that they were doing downfield when they were really sort of aggressive in the more vertical passing game. It's like, you know, the the Andy Reid West Coast offense on steroids that they had for Mahomes. Peyton was doing some of that earlier um, when during Breeze's time in New Orleans. And so, you know, I, I think as people sort of start to start to take a step back and over the, the coming days and weeks and months sort of revisit Peyton and, you know, what he did offensively during his time with the Saints, they're going to realize everything you just said, that it went through various versions. Um, it showed you that willingness to adapt, that humility in adapting your offense to the talent you, that you have. Because he could have said, no, 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 we're going to do it this way, this sort of timing and rhythm-based West Coast offense. This is what I coach. This is what I grew yep. up on. This is what I learned. This is my school of thought. So we're, that's what we're going to do. No, he changed it and adapted it to the, the talent that they had. And again, it, it just goes back to 
the smart coaches, the good organizations, the teams that have success are the ones that find that ability to adapt. And, you know, you look at some of the teams that are playing this weekend and they've needed to adapt what they do offensively, particularly the two teams that are playing in the NFC championship game, you know, and they've found ways to do it, to adapt what they do offensively as defenses have started to figure them out. And so, you know, Peyton's legacy those four systems and that willingness to adapt, those are lessons that I think all sort of young coaches on both sides of the ball, frankly, should take to heart. I just think he's nearer to Belichickian on the offensive side of the ball than he's ever been given credit for. I don't know if it's just raw success brings you that, or he gets dinged for having Drew Brees for some reason. So Belichick never had great defensive players at every level of the field for his entire run. Um even to him trying to do the Taysom Hill thing, right? I mean, we can laugh right. at it, but the idea of a two-quarterback system is something everyone on a blog was, you know, demanding in 2006. Like, please try this stuff. You know, look at what they're doing at West Virginia. Like, that's what we were asking of these people. And the guy is like, well, I've not got Drew Brees anymore, so this will be the next evolution. It's like the guy really tried to, to change the thing. Um, I remember... I was going to ask you about this. I don't know if you ever had this, that there was this like infamous underground teaching tape that went around, which was the most Sean Payton thing of all time. Cause the guy is nothing, if not proud of being Sean Payton, um, which I greatly admire, by the way, I respect the guy who realizes how good he is at his job compared to his uh, contemporaries in the field. So I got all this great teaching tape. They used to do a ton of information sharing back and forth with the Patriots. Those staffs were really close. They would share a bunch of stuff and the Patriots just got demolished by bunch formations and switch releases deep down the field. And I think it was 12, 13. When was Aaron Hernandez in trouble? Um, oh, that's covered. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly the year you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So they got absolutely mauled and they were going to the offices like, should we just go back to basics, lock and load, or should we try and get more sophisticated? So they talked to the Saints. The Saints are just murking people down the field with, with all this stuff. So they say, okay, you send us over your finest cut ups and let us go through. And you've seen teaching, God knows how many teaching tapes, Mark, but. Usually, you should, usually if someone asks you for one, one, that there's a progression of the concept, right? Here's our finest stuff. Um, here's us hitting it. Here's us missing it. Here's the record by going through each part of the progression. This is this one concept. You know, we kind of take you through every single facet of it, right? This comes across, and when you see it, it's just boom, touchdown, boom, touchdown, boom, 15, 16 yard shot play with nothing but just touchdowns the whole thing is look how amazing we are for four minutes straight in deep 20 yard touchdowns down the field and i admire it man if someone asked me to for some help i would send only the finest work that you could never possibly figure out a way to stop yeah no i i think that that sort of gets to sort of peyton and sort of the mentality that he had i mean you you mentioned Taysom hill and you know an easy sort of joke to make over the past couple of years was you know, Sean Payton putting Taysom Hill in the game just to show everybody how much smarter he was than the rest of us because we were all on the outside screaming, you can't you can't play Taysom Hill. This is dumb. You're taking Drew Brees off the field on third down to let Taysom Hill run the show. Like, what are you doing? But that's Payton. Like, yes, you have to be humble and change your offense and things like that, but you also have to think that you're pretty darn smart too. And I think Payton certainly was pretty darn smart and certainly is pretty darn smart. All right, let's get to these championship games. Uh, first of all, are you excited? Absolutely. Yeah. For, for quarterback play, by the way, you're the quarterback whisperer. How, how good was last weekend for you? Have you come down yet? Was it just raw, straight orgasm from the first minute to the, to the final game? Because you will never get in your life probably covering the sport another 48-hour period of quarterback play like that. No, no, absolutely not. Um, you know, whether it was Burrow surviving in the face of nine sacks, whether it was, you know, say what you want about Garoppolo. Um, he made some throws in that game that were impressive. Like it wasn't an overall textbook performance, but you know, he, he made some throws in that game that were impressive, but you know, certainly the two games on Sunday where you had, you know, Stafford and Brady going at it. And then the capper of all cappers, the, you know, Alan Mahomes, um, what is it? Three at this point. Um, but this was, I think by far the, the best meeting between those guys. Um, just an incredible display of quarterback play. Um, just anything you could do, I could do better kind of stuff. And I, I think that was reflected in the moment after the, the game when Mahomes stopped celebrating with his team to go find Allen um, and basically tell him, look, we're going to do this a bunch more times. Um, it was just a tremendous weekend of football and to have, 
all four games come down to the final play like they did all four games sort of come down to the end. And, you know, I, I don't think as football fans, as those of us on the outside who cover the sport um, could have asked for anything more. All right, let's get to the championship games. We'll start Bengals chiefs. Um, I want to get your thoughts first on Burrow versus that chiefs defense. How much stock, first of all, are you putting into the first matchup? Because to me, I look at it, I'm like, I really feel like to have a chance in this game, the Bengals need to be probably plus two or three in in explosive plays. That they have to have two or three shot plays beyond an offense that is built around hitting shot plays. And in that first game, they they basically were there. Um, they scored two touchdowns on the same concept, essentially that driving out concept where they affects yeah. the corner and they just pick inside outside. They put chase outside for one and inside for the other. Am I getting that right? Yeah. I remember yeah, one way exactly around right. um, and, and somehow the chiefs end up with having um, Daniel Sorensen pinata of football, Twitter uh, playing, uh, playing half the field. I, I, I should have. Um, so you got to imagine that coming into the game. Okay. We're going to sit on that stuff. Happy days. Can do the Bengals have the ability to essentially get you think into that, that plus two plus three explosive play margin? It, it, do, can they be explosive enough against a defense that has faced them already? I mean, I think Ollie generally they can. I just think that Steve Spagnuolo is going to play this game, you know, wildly different, you know, than he played it the, the first go around. I think you're going to see a lot of different stuff. In terms of, you know, he he came after him a lot in that first game, you know, in Burrow, he's so good under pressure. I mean, his his passing numbers been pressured this year, some of the best in the league. He's just so calm, so just in the moment when he's in the pocket. And so you look at that game, he had an, an adjusted completion percentage from PFF, 87.5 when pressured, you know, 7 of 10 for 138 yards and a touchdown when pressured in that game. I wouldn't be surprised if, and perhaps this is almost a nod to what you're talking about, if the Bengals need to generate some explosive plays, be plus one, plus two, which I think you're right. They're going to have to sort of generate some explosive plays on their own. It wouldn't surprise me if Spagnuolo plays this a little differently, plays it a little softer. Says, look, you know, you, you want to hit some stuff downfield. You want to, you know, throw those back shoulders to chase when you're pressured, you want to do this or that conceptually and try to manufacture that stuff downfield. We're going to take it away. We're going to go, you know, some, some quarter stuff, some cover two stuff, some, some quarter, quarter, half stuff, keep the two safeties deep, try to limit the damage, what you can do, make you read stuff out rather than, you know, pressure you early in the down and, you know, giving you a, all right, you'll throw hard or you'll just take your back shoulder, throw to chase. You'll just take your vertical matchup or something like that. So I really think Spagnuolo is going to make a huge adjustment from week 17 to, to this game um, tr and try to just get pressure with four because certainly the Titans have a tremendous defensive front, but they were able to get that pressure with four. They got home nine times. If you as the Chiefs and Spagnuolo get home six times, that's potentially six drives that get cut short. And now instead of handing the ball back to Ryan Tannehill, who throws three picks, you're getting it back to Patrick Mahomes. And so I think you're right. The Bengals are going to try to generate those explosive plays. But I just think Spagnuolo is going to approach it much, much differently than he did week 17. I agree. I think the Titans plan gives him such an, an easy blueprint here because the right side of that Bengals line is so bad. And if, if just one side is a complete sinkhole. I know the whole unit isn't very good, but the right side in particular is just such a mess that it really allows you to get it to make the matchups pretty easy. And that Titans front is excellent, but they don't have two players where one is an edge and one can rush from three or five, either right. with width or closer uh, towards the interior of the line, the way that the chiefs put Jones and Ingram together. That's the secret sauce yeah. of this chiefs defense is that he Absolutely. lines them together. And then you have to think about Frank Clark, who has decided he wants to play football again over the past four or five weeks. That is a nightmare decision for you to make. And if they can put them both to one side and you ain't flipping and moving linemen, right? They can move their guys. We don't move ours. That makes it really hard. And if you watch what the Titans did, the, the first, I don't know, 10, 12 dropbacks of Burrow, they were like, let's send the heat. 
let's figure this thing out. Let's try and overwhelm that lion. Let's start getting them to see ghosts so that when we start looping later and we start bouncing guys out with our four-man organic rush, that they're going to be so panicked that we can overwhelm with our two great interior players, which is what happened. They, they sent heat and they just completely backed off. I don't even think Spags will have to send any heat, frankly, because they just have yeah. better players. And then if you go to that Bills game, he really tried to roll the three safety stuff. He tried to play soft. He put three safeties in, and that's without Matthew. And I know it's obvious to say they have Tyra Matthew. They're a better team, but they were really bad in that set because they blew tons of shine, right? They just the short motion messed with them. They missed. They had so much miscommunication. They they were. I think I counted three or four instances against the Bills where they are literally yapping to each other, heads turned whilst the ball is snapped. Right, so that that is a disaster. If you just have another week, and if Matthew is healthy, and one of two of the three is Thornhill and Matthew, if you're playing with three safeties, where you can then get a bit more creative to make Burrow have to think. You know, they do that Tampa split thing they do. I mean, yeah. they get to Tampa from ten thousand different uh, looks and sets. And with Matthew, you can do even more creative rotations because you can do the Harrison Smith stuff where he's down the line of scrimmage, then he zooms all the way back. Um, or you can do the one, you know, cuts through the two or, you know, the two, uh, two of the three slide. You can do all kinds of crazy things on the back end to get to that same shell when one of them is Matthew, who's actually good, <laughs> not Sorensen, who is bad. Right. Um, if you can do those two things, we have Ingram and Jones on one side of the line of scrimmage that you are terrified of. So you're putting an extra resource there, chipping and releasing, do whatever you got to do. And then we're kind of clouding it on the back end, not cloud in the, in the sense of the, the coverage shell, but cloud right. in the sense of the visual look. And so it's like, well, I have to double check where that guy is moving. And also I'm getting killed at his right side. It's going to be really hard then if they're playing soft to do anything but say, hope for Yak, hope for Yak. And it's really hard to just bet on being plus two, plus three in the explosives against this Chiefs team if you're just betting on, we got to get run after the catch. Yeah, I mean, I always like to think of games as like, you know, which team has more pathways to victory? And the Bengals, as you just outlined there, Ollie, they they have such a narrow needle to thread here, you know, because you've got to you've got to score enough to keep up with Mahomes. Now, now this the, this Bengals defense is good, but the Bills defense is a better unit. And we saw what Mahomes and company were able to do against that defense. And so I, I think it would stun me if Kansas City doesn't put up points. And so you know, now you're talking about how are you going to match that? And if Spagnuolo is with you know a, a healthy honey badger, able to do some three safety stuff, try to keep things in front of them, get pressure with four, which I think they're going to be able to do you know, with, with Jones and Ingram. And like you said, the acquisition of Melvin Ingram, I think, fixed everything in Kansas City almost overnight. It's because when we were all writing, you know, what's wrong with the Chiefs offense? Can they figure it out? What's wrong with Mahomes? It was simply the fact that they couldn't get stops on defense at that time. And the, the, the experiment of taking Chris Jones, looking at what he can do, saying, hey, he's a fantastic interior penetrator and he can get pressure on the interior. Let's make him an edge. That experiment didn't work. They couldn't get stops. They were struggling. They had... Mathau and Sorensen staring at each other with their arms up after every single play. Usually it was 49 at fault. Now they acquire Ingram. They kick Jones back inside. They start getting stops again. And Mahomes doesn't feel like he has to finish every play with a touchdown. And he's checking the ball down a little bit. So when he's seeing all that cover four, cover two quarter stuff, he's throwing underneath. He's throwing shallows and stuff. That, that really fixed that team overnight. So now you go into this game and Spagnola can get pressure with floor against a beat up offense, a beat up offensive line that has struggled to protect Burrow. And even if they just get to him, say six times instead of nine, like I said, that's six drives that get cut short, six opportunities for Patrick Mahomes. I think you could see where I think this game goes. So let's do Mahomes versus that Bengals defense then. Um, and I, I'm not sure there's been anyone, any commentator anywhere, national, international, you name it, I'll stack myself up against the Mark Schofield, who has been more in the camp of Lou Anarumo than yours truly, right? I, 
I, I've been banging the table for this guy all season. I've written about him glowingly for a couple of reasons. One, I just, that's a really talented unit and it helps having a front four who can just mash fools because right. that makes life really easy. I think he's been really creative with the use of Von Bell. And this is a guy who I love when guys have been bad in some spots and then do well in other spots. He has had bad defenses. I'm not saying the guy is an all-time great defensive coordinator. I'm not saying go and hire the guy to be a head coach. I'm saying I really admire someone who, as we were talking about before, uh, be it with Peyton or Dayball, someone who will ditch their dogma to say, let's run what works and who will track and trace the evolution of the sport, both that what offenses are doing and what other defenses are doing around the league to be successful and say, why don't we do some of that? Not having the arrogance to say, we're going to run what we run because we've always run it. It's always been successful in his case, not always, but to say, I'm going to start fast fitting the A gap with Von Bell from depth because I saw uh, Brandon Staley do that in LA and it looked like it worked. Right, the, these little tiny tweaks that you can run maybe five, six times a game have been a huge, huge help for them. They are liable to run one thing a week they have never run all season, and that was never his way. Um, so I really admire that. And for Mahomes, I just look at it and say, this is almost like the big boss at the end of this thing because this is pure drop back, too deep safety shell, and then they will move. And then we got to figure out the movement. And that's been what everyone discussed all season. And my point on that kind of earlier in the year, I think since the Washington game, I, I thought they solved it against Washington, this concept of them not being able to beat two deep safety shells. Yeah. And they were just missing and not playing well. Kelsey wasn't getting open and then Mahomes would miss people. They had in that Washington game from Washington from memory in that game, they played the perfect game plan against Mahomes and then basically got roasted for a lot of the game where they would play with a boxing box out defender to take away the RPO and glance plays. Um, they would build all kinds of levels into their defense by doing pretty cool rotations out of three safety sets. They would move Landon Collins around. Um, and then they can't, they had a two deep safety shell for 90% of the game. And still three times they had Tyreek Hill wide open in the, in the high hole, basically splitting the two uh, defenders and Mahomes missed him. Either didn't connect or just whiffed and didn't throw the ball. Um, that is not a long-term sustainable thing as has been borne out. <laughs> At some point, those guys... They do connect. So I think it's it's interesting in so much as, okay, then we've had this narrative all season. I think he's kind of um, detonated all on his, own, on his own as Patrick Mahomes. But here we go. Let's see you do it then. This too deep safety shell. Will he, as they say, take what the defense gives him? Yeah, I do think that's largely where this game plays out. Uh, and I think you're, you're absolutely right about that Washington game because I, I, know, I know one of those interceptions, at least maybe both of them, went through people's hands just oddly. Um, and you know, I, I think Mahomes had started to piece it together in that game. And what's interesting, sort of looking back at that week 17 game between these two teams, first touchdown to Robinson that came with single high. You know, they they actually had single high with Bates as the post safety, and Kansas City did a good job with the double post dino look with Hill in the slot, Robinson outside. And if you're Bates, you know, you're worried, obviously, about Tyreek Hill first. And Mahomes did a, a really good job with his eyes to get Bates to buy that inside post and then throw the outside, you know, corner post route. Robinson ran a great route for a touchdown. So, you know, your, your boy ran some different things, ran some single high in that game. But I think largely they'll probably try to stay in the two high realm. Uh, I'm very curious to see, do we see some why ISO stuff, which we have seen, obviously, from the Chiefs before? Do we see some why ISO stuff with Hill at the three? you know, to sort of entice, you know, the backside safety to want to poach, to push over to the three side, not the one, and try to get Kelsey some favorable matchups on the single side. Um, so I think that's interesting to think about. And, you know, we might see that Sunday night. We might not. But I just think that, you know, I know these teams just played recently. I just I, I just keep coming back to the idea that Spagnuolo is going to do things differently when the Bengals have the football that Mahomes and company have really sort of figured out ways to attack the two high looks that they'll probably get. And we know that they can pick apart single high stuff as they've been able to do over the years. And can the Bengals score enough to keep pace? I'm just not so sure that happens. In what ways for you has this Chiefs offense evolved all season? That has been the the big talking point is there things you're watching conceptually where you think that the, ah, they've added that wrinkle, ah, ah, they've changed that. I know for large portions of the season, they just decided to stop moving for the most part, which is like you think about the Chiefs and what do you think is 
uh, again, it's shift motion motion, right? That's the that's the whole greatness of the of the enterprises. They're always on the move and they're bigger and stronger than us. Um, and then they have the best quarterback. It's not really fair. And it's almost as if they said, let's try and make the game more fair by taking away some aspects that <laughs> make us have an unfair advantage. Um, and they've done this before. I've read about this all seasons. They have regularly in the Mahomes era saved stuff for the postseason. Um, so what have you seen in kind of the evolution of them schematically this year? Or is it at this point just this is the same old Chiefs now? I mean, I think in some ways it's the same old Chiefs, you know, in the sense that they were able to feel more comfortable as an offense punting. And I know that's a little weird to say, but because of the fixes that were done on the defensive side of the ball, they were able to say, look, you know, if we have to give it back to them, if we have to punt, we're going to be okay. We don't have to force things. And then you saw, I, I think another game where it sort of clicked, and obviously this is different because Gus Bradley and so much single high stuff that he does was, you know, the first game against the Raiders, there were a couple of moments early in that game where Bradley was like, well, look, you know, I know everybody else is playing too high against Mahomes. That's what we've got to do, even though we've got as one of our two safeties, Jonathan Abram, who's basically a linebacker, and we're going to make him play a half field, you know, too high safety look. Mahomes threw some curl routes in front of him. You know, he had some moments where he might have wanted to, in the Mahomes of old, take that deep post route over the top to split those safeties. And no, no, I'm going to throw that curl. And so I think sort of in the, the back third of the season, he started settling for singles and doubles. But now it's got the effect of it's opening up the home run opportunities deeper downfield. I mean, you look at in that week 17 game, there was a it was another single high moment, but sort of like a, a dagger ish type concept where one's on the dig, two's on a, a vertical and he breaks it to the outside. Hardman does. And, you know, in week, say 12, 13, 14, Mahomes might throw the dig and take it underneath he lets this play out and throws that deep shot over the top. And, you know, third and 10 becomes first and 10 because you've just picked up 53 yards. I think it was that sort of evolution of settling for singles and doubles in the later in the sort of the middle of the season has freed up the ability to now say, okay, we've got that club back in the bag. Now we can start hitting the deep stuff over the top. So structurally, it's very much the same sort of offense conceptually. It's not like I'm seeing them run a bunch of stuff I haven't seen before. It's just, they settled for stuff at one point. Defenses have to sort of worry about that. That's almost freed up some of the deeper stuff downfield. All right, then let's get to Rams Niners part three. Um, I will start with you on Jimmy Garoppolo specifically. You mentioned him before. And it's such a fascinating, strange quarterback because everything he does is excellent until the ball comes out of his hand often. Um, it's really, really frustrating and bizarre. And you, I see why... Um, many, many evaluators would fall in love with him over and over again. Um, the Packers game I thought was really interesting because I thought he got dinged publicly for plays that were actually quite excellent. And yeah, I, I thought the All-22 of this game was incredibly revealing for him. One big thing for him all season and for his entire career really has been throwing into the middle of, field, of the field, layering the ball, the classic yeah. bucket throw over the line back in front of the safety. I think he's got memory serves 16 turnover worthy plays this year in the middle of the field from the depth of basically linebacker to safety in that kind of eight yard corridor there. Um, that is an insane amount for a guy who's um, not supposed to be throwing interceptions. That's his whole responsibility. Yet you go to that Packers game and I mean, he ripped two throws, unbelievable anticipation throws right in uh, one in the seam, then one right in that corridor. I'm discussing there um, in the hands Perfect ball placement should have been big plays. One was the Kittle drop, which just doesn't normally happen. One, I believe, is Juwan Jennings. Is that right? I cannot remember. Um, yeah, got, I think I think Garoppolo got lit up on that play too. Didn't they send the house. Um, memory's failing me now. So he kind of did the stuff he's not usually known for, and then actually made some some sloppy decisions on the stuff where he's actually better, which is outside the numbers where he's really good at knowing that those are low percentage throws, and I know when I'm good on those certain concepts. I know on the low percentage plays where I'm good. That's kind of what makes him uh, a, a above average starter. Um, where are you at with Garoppolo? And how do you think the Rams will, will try to bait him into this? Will it just be one cross, one lurk, robber, all the stuff that everyone has kind of been throwing at him now for the majority of his career? I think so. I mean, you look at where Garoppolo has gotten into trouble in the past that it's, you know, it's, it tends to be when two becomes one in the high safety realm 
and you bring that one, one cross, one lurk, one robber, you know, however you want to term it. And you take away that initial read from him and sort of, I, I wrote this week, I called it, you know, force him into the gray, force him to have to sort of think and read it out because so many interceptions in, in rewatching his season this year and even watching some of his stuff from last year to get ready for this game. You see him, he'll open to one side. He wants to rip it. He doesn't think he could rip it. He'll come back and just throw it right to that safety that drops down. He'll try to hit that backside dig, that backside option route, whatever it is that's his sort of secondary or third read on the play, and just throw it right to a safety poach it or, or throw it right to – like he had one, a Harrison Smith pick from earlier this year where he was looking at Harrison Smith dropping down, and he still threw it right to him. I mean, he's just – he's got this almost vapor lock type thing where you go from two to one in the high safety realm – and he throws it right to that safety. He just he just can't help himself. And I think when you also consider the fact that the Rams are going to have to sort of stop the run. And for all the credit that Mike McDaniel and Kyle Shanahan get for what they construct in the in, offensively, it, we tend to focus on the pass game. The Niners do such a great job in the run game, like manufacturing extra gaps, whether it's you know, when they, they do their SIF stuff, but they also, instead of just the tight end sifting over, you've got a jet receiver coming over as well. Now, instead of one guy coming across, you've got two, you know, whether it's the, the Zorro stuff, the toss stuff that they do, where you've got the crack angles and you're getting great advantageous blocking angles, whether it's the toss inside zone SIF that they do, where it looks like it's going to be toss, you're hoping people overcommit to the edge, but it's really just inside zone off of that. They do such a great job of creating extra gaps. So what do you have to do as a defense? You want to get that extra safety into the box to help, you know, in terms of the bodies, if it's plus two for the offense, make it plus one. In terms of the gaps, you might still be technically outgapped, but you've got a chance of covering those gaps up. So you're going to want to spin, spin that safety down anyway. And so I think we're going to see a lot of that stuff. Now, what's interesting about this game and the thing that makes me think that the Niners have a chance and in a weird way it's because of Garoppolo Garoppolo this year I think fifth fastest in time to throw from snap to release 2.55 seconds but in the two games against the Rams it was 2.33 like Shanahan basically told him Vaughn Miller Leonard Floyd Aaron Donald they can't beat us if they can't get there in time just just get the ball out just get it out of your hands quickly we'll throw slants we'll we'll get some two-way goes for Kittle. We'll put him in the slot. We'll put him at the three, get him some two-way goes against corners, nickels, linebackers, whomever, just get the ball out of your hand quickly. You know, that's what we'll have to do in the passing game to neutralize what they do up front. And then in terms of the run game, you know, we'll try to do what we do with Debo and Mitchell and manufacture different gaps and extra gaps when we can. And we've got a bunch of stuff we can throw at the Rams, but I think that weirdly enough, that snap to release time and that experience to get the ball out quickly. And while it's sometimes more dangerous throw because you're attacking underneath and in the intermediate areas, if you can get the ball out quick, we continue that. That's probably why they started them in week 18 in the do or die game. And I think that sort of weird Garoppolo superpower of I'm just going to get the ball out of my hand almost instantaneously is a big reason why they get a shot in this one. That's interesting. And it's funny because the brutal plays that he had in that game, and he, he did play well in that game, was when he held onto the ball. But even with, it was within the design, they try and took, to take the shot play out of the split back set to keep extra guys in to give him more time. And they ran, um, I can't even remember what it was now. I think it was just two posts or an over and a post in the backside. And he kind of split the difference. If you remember, he just laid it yeah. in the middle to I think there's three Rams defenders and he split the difference between the two targets. Um, there was another one, similar, similar concept where like, we'll keep extra guys in. Now we're taking a shot. It's so even within their own game plan, when they allowed him to, and they baked more time into the concept, he still got into trouble then less. So even than just the, the, the raw pressure that you're talking about there. So It'll be interesting to see. I mean, they're going to have to live in, in third and medium, third and manageable, third and sure, and anything yeah. longer. And, and then, yeah, that's where they get cooked. Um, on the other side of the ball, quickly, I will say, I, I've written a ton about this Niners defense at this point because I'm just infatuated. Um, it's, it's, it's a really special group having been coached in a special way to cover up maybe the most obvious flaws on any roster in the NFL and that they've managed to cover up one by just having nine get off and go pass rushes is, is, yeah. is crazy. Um, but 
In terms of Stafford and this Rams offense, one thing that's been really noticeable to me is one, the integration of Odell Beckham in multiple ways, uh, him changing their third down package, going from what was uh, basically splitting out Woods and Cup and having quick game to one side, intermediate to the other, to saying bleep that, put Beckham with Cup and we'll run either intermediate or quick game with them two together, which makes it really hard for the defense. And secondly, how they've really not redefined, that would be probably hyperbole, but they've they've changed their run game with Odell Beckham, where they're not asking him to be Robert Woods. That was a big thing. Can he do the Robert Woods things? What they've done with Odell Beckham is said, he's Odell Beckham. And all those guys on the other side of the field know that he's Odell Beckham. They know who he is. So they're terrified of him getting a head start in motion. And, and um, you know, let's say tight split from one side of the formation to the other. And he's going to the corner and we are in trouble, right? They are petrified of that, of, of giving him, of, of getting caught with inside leverage of him going to the corner. So they use him as the guy coming across the formation, almost like it's a bootleg play where the guy, he's like flying to the flat or he can take the wheel or he can take the corner. And they use his movement to create the extra block. And they run, run the ball the other way. Okay, with Cup, whether it's a toss, whatever it is, they'll send someone, they'll shift across one way, they send Beckham the other way after the snap, but they run the ball counter to Beckham. So they're using the threat of him and his name and who he is and his talent to, to get a similar impact of having Woods at the point of attack. And it's just such smart coaching. That's why these guys are so good. That's why McVay is so good. He didn't say, back to our point, the kind of the theme of this podcast, Mark, of okay, I've lost Robert Woods. Go get me a guy who kind of looks like Robert Woods. Let's ask him to, to stick his nose at the point of attack. He's not going to do it. So how do, you, how do you kind of retool the pieces there whilst having this unbelievable receiver once he gets out into his break? And I'm just fascinated with, with how, how this is going to match up um, for the Rams offense. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point about how one of the various, various ways they've incorporated Odell. And I think what's interesting to think about, Ollie, is you think about Odell's time with the Browns and how that sort of ended. And in many ways, Stefanski was trying to use him in a similar way as sort of a decoy guy, as sort of a guy that's going to be eye candy, but he's also going to stretch defenses down the field. And you're going with the fear of God and an opposing secondary that, that Baker Mayfield is going to throw that deep shot at some point to Odell. So you better be paying attention to him. Problem is Baker wasn't making those throws. And so defense just figured out, we don't have to worry about it. And when they would use Baker as the backside dig guy, Baker wasn't throwing that. And so defense didn't worry about it. Now in LA with the Rams, you've got in Stafford, a guy that's going to make that throw that, that, that will target um, Odell Beckham downfield. If you put him in motion or if he's just, you know, singled up in a, a three by one, or if he's outside of cup who's in the slot, you know, you have to worry about Odell that might give you a favorable matchup for cup. But if you decide, look, this play, we're going to sort of bracket or we're going to worry more about cup on the inside. We'll spin it to a one cross one lurk and try to take away what he's doing. Now you've got that single up matchup outside. And instead of Mayfield, not looking at it, Stafford's going to look at it and throw it. I think that's a huge part of how they've incorporated him. So it's a weird sort of, he's the decoy guy, but now you've got a quarterback that's going to make you pay. If you decide you're not going to pay attention to him. And I think, that aspect is huge. I think a critical part of this game is, you know, in many ways, the traditional, can you get pressure with four? Because the Niners have the ability to do that with the guys that they have up front. But can Stafford get enough time? Because, you know, Seth Galina wrote a really interesting piece about the, you know, 49ers defense this week, about how Fred Warner and what they do, how they match routes from inside out to try to limit what you can do quickly in, or in sort of the short and intermediate area and then just try to take stress off the corners they have on the outside but if you have time as a quarterback you can potentially either exploit those matchups on the outside or hit some of those secondary windows where okay that first window isn't open to you because they've taken that away with water and how they're related to routes after the snap but if I've got time to step up in the pocket or those four guys up front can't get home, now I can throw that backside dig. I can throw that secondary post route or I can take advantage of that matchup on the outside. And so I think, you know, if Stafford has time, he'll be able to do that. But will he get time is a big question. The other thing about that too, which I, I think this is, a, 
I think this is a tough one for Stafford for a couple of reasons. One big one is they have become a lot more disguise based as the season's gone along. They did not disguise yeah. for a lot. Yeah, they were just we play zone because uh, we our corners aren't good enough. Uh, early in the season, we're going to blitz. We get shredded. Okay, now we're just going to play zone, drop off, try and get there with four. And oh, look at that. We have the best front four in the league. Um, that's really helpful. Best eight. You know, we roll through all of them. Send, send Warden for a couple of reps and, uh, and let's have fun. Um, as they've moved more towards the playoffs, it's not so much that they've gone away from doing that, but they they play more man. They played more man um, last weekend. They, they certainly have gone from the, this rolling three to one thing they do where they show it as zone, but they roll from the from cover three into a cover one man coverage, but it looks like zone before. And my thing with Stafford, as much as I'm, I'm an admirer of, of his, is deep in the concept, reading it out deep, when you change the rotation deep down the field is where I think he gets himself into bother. Um, so I do think for him, you know, if it's if it's flying and here comes Jones crashing inside and then Ebukman is looping around, I, and then he's got to read out down the field that it, it was supposed to be zone. They play a ton of zone, but wait, did they just switch to man? Because they're, they're doing it so fast and so creatively. Um, most people will have seen this. It's the Robert Salah stuff, right, where the, the corner um, – basically leaks out to uh, replace the safety. The safety road states down and they, it kind of has this um, three match feel, but it becomes cover one with a quite, um, quite a deep exchange between the safety and corner. I think for Stafford to read that out in time, it's not that that is hard to be. It just becomes cover one. No problem. We can, you know, we're playing man to man and we fancy our chances with that, with, with the guys we've got with cup and Odell Beckham and and their corners. That's great. It's, it's just purely the rotation plus the time. That's the thing. And it's similar to what we talked about with Joe Burrow and the chiefs is that people talk about disguise. If you're going to try and freak out the quarterback somehow, which can happen every now and then, but it's mostly just adding in the extra beats. If you add in two extra beats to Matthew Stafford's drop against that front four, then we have a real problem. Uh, and that to me, I think is where the game is mostly on the line. Yeah. And I, I really like the way you describe that the extra beats, because, you know, people think, Oh, you're spinning the safeties. You're trying to confuse the quarterback. Odds are you're not confusing any quarterback that's made it to this point in their career. Like if you've made it to the NFL, you're not going to completely fall apart. Maybe Jimmy Garoppolo has his moments, but for the most part, you're not going to completely fall apart when something gets spun early in the down, right at the snap, late in the down, whatever. But you might also, A, throw off a receiver. I mean, that also can happen. And B, you might just force that extra beat or two in the pocket when I think this is one. No, they're spinning it to two or they're spinning it to four. Now I've got to recalibrate or I've got to take my eyes from front side to back side because if it's a single high concept, I'm reading this on the, on the right side of the formation. If it's too high, I have to now get my eyes back to the left side. That takes a beat or two. And sometimes in this game with the pass rushers that the Niners can put out there, that might be all they need. That might be all that Bosa needs to get home or to get close to home so that Stafford has to then throw it away or pull it down or check it down. So, yeah, I mean, manufacturing extra beats from a defensive coordinator's perspective, that's a good thing to do. And if Demeco Ryans can manufacture enough extra beats this weekend, they're going to slow down this offense and they're going to slow down Stafford. And this is where Ryan's has been interesting is that in, in, in continuing what Salah did, which was not necessarily going from two to one and, and saying, hey, we're, we're playing with two deep safeties, light box, run the ball. It's going from one to a different one, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's going from zone to man. And have having played so much zone all season that the quarterback is keying zone that the early initial phase, because you're so far off the line of scrimmage as your corners looks like zone two and oh, they're rotating. Cool. It's just three strong. It's three weak, whichever side the, the safety is rotating. Oh no, wait, it's man to man coverage. They're just picking us up at six shots. Yeah. That that's, that's where it gets dicey because you're going to have to wait for that to declare itself. That that's the, the issue. Unless you just want to smoke screen, get the ball out there. Um, uh, any, anything else I wanted to ask Mark Schofield? Oh, yes. Just quickly before I let you go. Uh, Stafford himself, as someone who watches all this stuff so closely, last weekend, I, I really felt like lost in the carnage of that game was how many special plays he made. And because it, it, it fell off the table so fast um, and ended the way it did, it, it felt to me like people lent more to one Todd Bowles awful play call which is true um and we kind of again as the commentary i, I guess 
have missed on this was the whole point of the Stafford experience. If anyone thought it was going to be perfect, then you didn't watch Matthew Stafford. But it was about just pushing the ceiling, pushing what's possible for this Rams offense. One, they at the start of the season completely uh, talking to free to find, change the entire offense essentially. Now they're a bit more back to some of their old old stuff. Um, and I think a more uh, a finer balancing act now. Um, but just Stafford in general, where are you at with Stafford as he's played down the stretch this season? I mean, I'm, I've kind of always been a fan of Stafford's and I always thought that he was, you know, even though the results weren't reflective of, of it, in terms of like a trait-based analysis of quarterback play, he was always one of the guys that I would look to all the time. I mean, I remember, you know, a couple of years ago, people asked me my top five quarterbacks and he was five and got a lot of pushback on that. But I said, look, from a trait-based perspective, from what he can do as a passer, there are a few like him. I mean, he was doing a lot of the Mahomes no-look stuff before Mahomes. And I think in terms of that game against the Buccaneers, and like you said, lost in the shuffle and the carnage is his performance. Look at the last big shot to come, and you will see why they made the trade for him. You know, because one of the big knocks on Jared Goff is he hesitates. Like, you know, you can point to countless upon countless plays. You can point to a game and a play that might have cost them a Super Bowl, that miss in the back of the end zone to Brandon Cooks, where he was, he was late for a beat or two trying to read it out, and it gave Jason McCourty time to recover and break that up in the back of the end zone. If he doesn't hesitate, we're talking about Super Bowl champion Jared Goff. You look at that play to Cup. Cup isn't quite technically open when Stafford lets this go, but Stafford knows that it's zero. I got to get this out. He's got a shot. He's not even even yet, but I trust he's going to win downfield. I've got this backside safety. I'm going to trust that he's working to Higby and he's not somehow bracketing cup in any way. I don't have room to hesitate. I'm going to let this fly. If that's Jared Goff, I can guarantee you, he's probably going to wait an extra beat or two to see if cup gets open and he probably gets sacked. But Stafford, there's no hesitation. And the night this trade went down, I wrote over at USA Today that they traded him. They traded Goff for Stafford because Stafford will not hesitate. He will not hesitate in a big moment when they need a big throw downfield. He's going to let it fly because that's the kind of quarterback he is. And he might get burned from it from time to time, but there's going to come a time you're going to need him to make a throw without hesitation. That's exactly what happened. And so I, I think this is why you went out and got him. This is why in the next couple of months, we're going to see quarterbacks get pushed up boards because you need to have the guy. You need to have the guy that's going to do this. Can you win a Super Bowl with a Jared Goff or a Jimmy Garoppolo? Yeah. But the pathway is easier with the guy and the Rams have that guy right now. All right, then that'll do it for this podcast. Did you want to make predictions? Do you do predictions? I, I'm not a prediction guy. It, I'm not really a prediction like you're leading guy, but... Chiefs Niners, it sounds like. Yeah, I'm kind of leaning Chiefs Niners. I mean, that's what I did. We, we did a prediction video and I did Chiefs Niners. And I, I, I just... It's weird, Ollie. I just think that the Niners, for some reason, match up really well against the Rams. I just think they match up really well. I think it's going to be an extremely good game. I think it's going to be close. I think it could play out a lot like the Week 18 game. But I think the Niners have the edge. Yeah, I'm with you. I, You know, Stafford just destroys the blitz, and I just don't think the Niners are going to bring any heat. Yeah. Stafford has to steal four snaps a game against the blitz because he's so much better than the average and then even the upper tier of, of blitz quarterbacks he just kills the thing like i said if he has to see it late in the drop that's when he gets a bit squirrely and then like you said he's just like oh fuck out throw it on the figure <laughs> the rest out later and uh he loves the fuck it ball yeah. um if he can just if he can just like you said it's zero and it's just hit the back foot and let it rip i mean he's gonna kill you all day um, that's where he's at his best. So I don't know. It's a tough one. I think I'm leaning that too. It's, oh, I, I must feel like it shouldn't be allowed to be Chiefs Rams because that was that almost feels video gamey. The, that's the best team. And then they went out and made all those offseason moves and midseason moves and put together an actual video game team. Um, that, that would feel like one of those where at the start of the year where CBS, whoever does the, the Madden simulated season and stuff. And right. You get, you get I, I want a bit more variance. Um, so I think I'm rooting for. Niners Chiefs, I think. Um, well, I'm rooting for Joe Burrow, honestly. Yeah, I, I mean, all I, I do in life now is root personally for Joe Burrow to succeed. Yeah, and honestly, I don't think any of the possible combinations would would disappoint me. I mean, I, I think Bengals Niners would be great. I think 
Bengals Rams would be great. I mean, I'm, I'd be fascinated about any potential matchup, but you know, sitting here right now, Thursday afternoon. Yeah. I'm, I'm that's where I'm at right now is, is Niners chiefs. All right. Then Mark Schofield, people can read you USA today, the NFL wire. They can follow you on Twitter at Mark Schofield. That link will be included in the description. Go follow Mark, go and listen to all interesting quarterback stuff and other positions too, but mostly great on the quarterbacks. Mark, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much, my friend. Always a blast.